Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey there. John Epperson. Hello, everybody. Dave Kimura. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we're going to cut through all the red tape. Dave, or you... introduce it. One, one or the other. <laughs> right. This was kind of your idea, Dave. So do you want to kind of set the stage for us here? So I think that a lot of people, there's almost a culture shock as a solo developer <clears throat> moving to a team where you have to then, especially for a young team, have to create processes around how you do things. So once we have a feature that has been completed and we want to get it to production, we understand that there is a step of deploying it to production, but it's not as simple as just deploying the master branch to production. Usually there are a lot of steps and processes in place or needs to be created around that. And I really just want to explore some of those processes and maybe the viewers can see if in their environment and what they are doing, do they have maybe some things that they are doing that's unnecessary where it's just one of those pieces of red tape because it's always been there or maybe someone higher up has introduced a certain process that is not really needed it's not providing any actual benefit or security for the team hey folks this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately i've been working on actually building out top end devs if you're interested you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, Right. So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Well, hang on, because why not just use Heroku, right? And then it really does just push your main or master branch to production, right? Is Heroku a sponsor of this episode? Nope. Okay, well, then because Heroku will go down on you unexpectedly. <laughs> or DigitalOcean app platform is the other... That's what I've been using to deploy. But yeah, I've kind of been soloing it just to give a little bit of context on a lot of my stuff. What, so I, I commit, I break the code, the, the website doesn't come up, I go fix the code and it comes back up. Thank heaven for Sentry. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, I really don't want to get into the infrastructure side of things on this right. topic because I think that there's so much, like before we even get to that point, but I was looking at DigitalOcean at Platform and I was really disappointed with it recently simply because they take some very harsh assumptions in mind. Yeah, they so do. If they are basically assuming that you are using Webpacker. Because if you tried to deploy a Rails 7 application using JS bundling and CSS bundling, it won't work. You still need yeah. the Node package on there, but they don't have it included. So it is something I believe that they are aware of. 
namely because I actually talk to them and they're aware of it. But it's something that they are actively looking at, investigating, incorporating some kind of feature flag there. Yeah, I've run afoul of some of those assumptions. To be honest, I think that's something that plagues like almost all of these out-of-the-box type solutions, right? Whether it's like Elastic Beanstalk or even Heroku over the years, right, has had various moments in which their stuff has made assumptions and we've all, well, okay, those who have interacted with Heroku have, have therefore needed to like deal with a problem. So, I mean, all of them have problems when their goal is, okay, you don't know anything about what's going on, so I'm going to package up the solution for you and deliver it, right? That's just kind of a thing that I think comes with that style of uh, product, so to speak. Not, yeah. not to excuse them. I'm just saying it's common. Yeah, and there is no silver bullet. Yeah, I've looked at all of the different solutions that claim, you know, this is a Ruby on Rails deployment mechanism that has been created, whether it is App Platform, Heroku, Beanstalk, AWS App Runner, or any of the various tools that you can attach on top of your infrastructure to do your deployments for you. In most cases, I've seen that there are a lot of best practices that's not being taken at the infrastructure level. Yeah. So you did say that you weren't necessarily wanting to get into the infrastructure. And I think there's a conversation to be had about some of the other processes. For example, when I worked at Morgan Stanley, it's weird to talk about that openly now because I've I've always kind of played it close to my vest who I'm working for these days, but since I'm not there anymore. Anyway, they their process essentially was we would so so master the master branch always deployed. So if you push the master, it would deploy after it ran through CI. So if it passed CI, it would deploy. But there was a process before that, right? So you would submit a pull request and then it would get reviewed. And then it seemed like most of the time it would get a rubber stamp, right? You had to have two reviewers. And then once it was approved by two people, you could merge it. And once it actually got merged, then it would get pushed up. And yeah, I know other people have other processes for this. And I'm a little curious that level, what that looks like. And I'm also curious, Dave, if this is kind of the level you were intending to talk about. Yeah, even in your example. So let's just start at the code review part. So someone makes a PR and then that PR gets code reviewed by two people. What is expected of that code review? So do the people doing the code review actually pull down your feature branch and do they execute it on their local environment or whatever dev environment that they have to verify that things are working ex- you know, as they would assume? Or of course not. The... <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we, we should talk about that specifically because I, I actually am and in the camp that I don't think that's important, right? Because that's for me, that's a piece of work that's QA. So if you give your developers the QA responsibility, then absolutely right but if you have for example a separate yeah yeah if you have a separate qa team does it belong to the developer to do that right so we should talk about that we should revisit but yeah keep going so we can get the list of points dave so if no i agree with you john i don't think the developer doing the code review should pull down the project at that feature branch and then execute it on their local environment that causes a lot of hiccups Mm -hmm for the developer doing the code review, especially if they were in the middle of something, because I've had situations where I've get stashed everything in my project, pulled down to help someone else. And then when I go to 
reapply my stash, something happened. Something right. crazy happened and it did not apply correctly. It got merge conflicts for whatever reason, or it just said the good stash apply failed. And then I had to go through and spend a few hours kind of figuring out what the heck happened. So, you know, if you are doing that, where you are actually pulling down the code, is that a necessary step in your process? It adds a lot of overhead. Unless if you have a completely separate directory or Docker Compose environment that you were then loading that into, it can cause a lot of headaches. So at that point, what actually is supposed to happen in a code review? If someone isn't using the proper spacing or the proper styling, should that be called out at the code review time? Or should we be focusing on the actual business logic that was introduced? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I kind of tongue-in-cheek jumped in with, of course not, but we really rarely pulled down the code, right? We'd... Now, now this did bite us a couple of times, right? Because you look at the code, it looks fine, it, it passes CI, and then it gets deployed, and then something broke. And when it broke, you know, then then it trickles back through to the dev team. And they're like, why didn't you catch this in the code review? And turn around and talk to the developer that wrote the code. Well, did you run this on your machine? And the the silence is deafening, right? It's, no, I just wrote the code and committed it. And so I'm, I think there's even a kind of a, a level in there somewhere beyond this where it's like, if you're writing the code, you should be running it on your machine. I, I think that goes without saying, or I, at least I thought it went without saying before I worked with some of these guys that pulled this a couple of times. But yeah, not out of overhead, but just out of a sense of you're usually not code reviewing it, reviewing it to validate that it functions because you would assume that it at least works on the developer's machine, the guy that wrote it or the gal that wrote it. So then it's just a matter of, hey, does this conform with what I would expect this to look like? Does it does it have any glaring issues? Did they make any major architectural issue mistakes or I don't know, things like that? Yeah, I think it comes down to like your culture, right, of your team and like what you're valuing, like what's the purpose of code review to your team? Like what value you're getting out of it, right? If you're like, well, it's just an extra stage of testing. All right, I guess then that makes sense, right? Or or if, for example, it kind of sounds like you maybe had a scenario where there's sort of this expectation on your team that people are delivering features that don't work. And so therefore you're like, well, we need to have like this extra round before it goes to QA because we don't want to engage the QA process until this point or something. And so maybe in that case, like I wasn't there, like I I don't want to like say yay or nay, right? Like that wasn't, but yeah, for me, I think that I've definitely been at places where people just pulled down during code review because they thought that that was just what code review was. Like there was no... There was no impetus for it. There was no motivation for it. Like from like the team had never discussed that they were getting value out of that. That's just what people did. And and after talking about things like that was a lot of time that was being spent doing something and in that place, you know, we actually had a QA team and their job was actually to catch Mm -hmm. bugs and things like that. So they were they were just doubling up on the work. And, you know, you could be like, well, sometimes they catch things. And I mean, I guess my point would be like it you're spending somebody's time when you're having people do code review so why are you spending that time right typically in my mind the things that you're getting out of code review are 
like you said, right? You're, why why do you even care about architecture, for example? Well, you're hoping that a year down the road, you don't say, hey, you know, actually we rewrote this in like a really bad way. And and now we have these all these problems all over the app because we just let this code get in. And I feel at the end of the day, that's I, what I feel like is usually the most cited thing for why we do code review is to prevent us from like coding ourselves into a corner or allowing juniors to completely refactor the app without anyone else noticing kind of thing. So I feel like those are usually the most cited things, not, hey, we just needed an extra test cycle and we wanted to put some of our most expensive employees onto the testing cycle. (laughs) I'm curious, Dave and John, you know, you can kind of chime in too here since you've both weighed in on this, but what what is the purpose of the code review then, right? Because if it's to download the code and run it or download the code and run the test, I mean, that's what CI does more or less. So I think, and I probably don't follow the best practices here myself, but I usually look for any kind of like real big red flag optimizations that could be done to say, hey, I noticed that this is being introduced. It's going to do this kind of loop or recursion. Have you thought about approaching it this other way? And that usually will have a performance impact in the long run. But those kind of things, I think, really should have happened a bit earlier in the chain instead of at the point where a developer is now saying like, hey, we are done with this and you know, I'm ready to ship it. And because that's essentially saying like, hey, let's go back to the drawing board. And now we're kind of at a waterfall design pattern instead of, you know, being more agile. But I do try to look for anything that could be introduced, like an edge case that could generate a support call, essentially. I just wanted to chime in here. This whole conversation reminds me a lot of uh, a post Kent Beck made last year on change and basically the the cost of software. Uh, and he made this like kind of cool equation where the, he breaks down the cost of change is the cost of understanding the code plus the cost of modifying it plus the cost of validating it and then the cost to deploy it. And that really resonates with me. I try to think about it all the time. And kind of like the code review is part of that cost, right? Like it's the cost to validate as a, a extra step to make sure that it works right. But it's also like, it it adds in all these costs, right? To me, code reviews, you want to make sure that it stays easy to understand and easy to modify. And like to Dave's point, like if something would work better kind of in the longer run, or maybe uh, you can point out things that could lead to refactorings later down the road, those all kind of point to these extra costs to digest it and change it over time, which I think can be caught in in a review versus like just getting the code to pass tests. It's kind of funny to switch topics a bit, but staying on this idea of red tape, I won't mention the company because I did not work there, but I did work with a, I do work with a colleague who did. And one of the things that was said is that they were not allowed to install gems. On their local development machine, they were not allowed to install gems. Oh, wow. Actively blocked. And if they wanted to install a gem, they had to open up a ticket with IT. IT had to then basically whitelist this. And then they, if approved, then it would be allowed and it could get added in and 
they could run bundle and stuff. And when I heard that, I, I was thinking like, I would never work for that company. That's completely ridiculous. And that's insane. I'm not going to do that. You know, if I want to use a gym, I have a reason why I want to use a gym. I'm going to use it. But now, many years later, I'm thinking, that's actually not that bad of an idea. It sucks. It's adding red tape to the process. But if we go to the root of why are they implementing this red flag or this you know, red tape, what is the actual purpose of it? If it's for security that they actually want to do a manual code review of that gym to make sure that things aren't getting introduced, any kind of major security risks, especially if the company has had a history of being exploited in the past. But then also, it kind of makes you think or have to think, do I really need, and this is really the point that I'm getting to, do I really need to add this gym into my application? Or am I just left padding it? I feel like some gem hurt you. <laughs> left padding it. That somebody well, else that somebody else added. <laughs> well, left pad was the NPM package that was removed yeah. from from NPM and everything or a whole bunch of other packages depended on it. And yeah, it caused a whole bunch of consternation when people did NPM and install because then NPM said, I can't find this. We had a conversation, um, interestingly maybe. enough on some related stuff with supply chain attacks, right? It was on JavaScript Jabber, so we were talking about NPM specifically, but it was the same idea, right, where a malicious code gets inserted into a, a package or gem. Uh, in, that, in that case, it was an NPM package, right? And then something else winds up depending on it or something depends on it, and then it has the uh, code inserted into it later, and then when you upgrade it, you know, you get the malicious code. And so, yeah, limiting what people can install into the app or onto their machine does mitigate some of this. And the other thing is, is that I see a lot of people that will put gems in to get one little piece of of something that it does. And then what you wind up with is you wind up with this kind of dependency bloat, where at the end of the day, you have three gems that could all solve the problem, but because you kind of pick them for different other things that they solve, at the end of the day, you may be able to eliminate one. And people usually don't go audit their gems and say, all right, we're going to pull this one out and we're going to pull this one out. We're going to replace that one. So one gem example that, I mean, this is a pretty minute thing, but Friendly ID. Friendly ID is a really cool gem that does a lot for you as far as making your URLs pretty, instead mm -hmm. of having something like a post slash one, you could have a post slash whatever this post is about. And that's a really nice feature. But if you never change your slug, or if you want your slug to change whenever you update the record, if you don't need to keep a history of it, then are you complicating your application or your tech debt by introducing a gem when it's not really necessary. Mm -hmm. Because you can create your own implementation of Friendly ID fairly easily without needing to add in a whole nother gem. Yep. So I think all of these things are true, but at the same time, so I definitely wanted to move back to the other thing, but but to address gems specifically, like, I mean, I'm, I'm very much in the middle of the road, right? I think you should have to justify adding gems, right? Because I think that once again, I actually love Valentina that you brought up, King, 
Kimpex stuff, right? Adding a gem to your project, anytime that you add dependencies to your project, that's a cost, right? Costs aren't evil, they're just costs. So is your cost giving you the value that you want, right? So the reason why, for I think a great example of this, like for example, a good gem is device. Now, I know there's alternatives out there, but my point is like, not and maybe not necessarily device, right? Just picking an auth gem, right? And the reason why people ask, people have asked me in the past, well, you know, like,